I could only hope that people who listen to my music get some, of course, entertainment, but maybe at a deeper level, some peace, some inspiration. Music is a funny thing. Sometimes you really can't say what you're trying to say, but through music, you can. Your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello there. I'm Catherine, your host of this variety show podcast. Your positive imprint is transforming how we live today for a more sustainable tomorrow through education and information. Your own positive actions inspire change. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Visit my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, and learn more about the podcast and sign up for email updates. And thank you for listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Pandora, well, (laughs) your favorite podcast platform. Music by the legendary and talented Chris Noll. Check out Chris, and that music playing right now is Gumbalaya, Chris Knoll's music. Check him out, chrisknoll.com, C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Thank you again for listening and for your support of this podcast. Your positive imprint. What's your P.I.? So guess what, everybody? He is here. (laughs) My guest today is none other. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. I'm going to do it this way. Music by the talented Chris Knoll. That's C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. <laughs> okay, yes, indeed. The one and only composer of Your Positive Imprints Music, Elevated Intentions. Well, I met Chris in 1997, and I knew him as John Denver's piano player during the 1990s. But during the years, Chris introduced me to his own compositions, not just for the podcast, but during my classroom years for those environmental days, school projects, and his Christmas compilations are, of course, used across the world. He plays them with passion. And I'm always excited to share his music with you, and I have some of my own favorites. Well, his talent reaches across the genre spectrum with jazz, soul, reflective melodies, the blues, just everything. He's so talented. And I certainly admire Chris for his compositions that entertain me. Chris describes his extensive career as a quest for music that makes you feel good when rhythms, sounds, melodies, and stories all come together to create magic. Well, his magic mesmerized me. It's awesome to finally, Chris, finally to have you on the show to share your positive imprints. <laughs> Chris Noel, welcome to Your Positive Imprint. <laughs> Aw, you do that so well. You have like the best podcast voice. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> it's so soothing and interesting. And thank you for the such kind words. My word. Oh, well, my gosh, they fit to a T you, don't they? I think I they hope. do. <laughs> I'll try to live up to that. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, Elevated Intentions. I remember you were forming the podcast and you wanted to use some of my music and i said well wait a minute why don't i just try to sit down and write something for Catherine, personalize it and uh it's a pretty cool melody if i 
say so myself. Ah, Chris, thank you so much for Elevated Intentions and for taking the time to do that. I, uh, I th threatened to release it as a single. At some point, I think I might do that. I believe it's a little short right now to release, but I'm going to revisit it. And I like the song a lot, and I'm glad you do and glad you use it. And maybe we need to get, get it out there on all the platforms also. So it's on my to-do list. <laughs> Chris, whatever you want to do, I am just thrilled. It was just your ingenious talent, your composition that put that oh. together. And I, again, thank you. So you're here, my gosh, to finally share your positive imprints. And we have been trying for literally years <laughs> to get together. Yeah, I, I thought I was going to be your first guest. <laughs> I know. It was it was absolutely going. But then things just didn't go right. And then we were trying to do 2020. And then, of course, we know what happened there. And But now, wow. Uh, wow. How many, how many podcasts have you done to date so far? I have done 191. I remember you were just launching this. You've, you've such the professional now, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I like to think so. I like to think so. And, uh, started out and I had, of course, I had a sponsor and then COVID hit and my sponsor mm. died of COVID, Aww. which was, I know it was really sad for his family, but we move forward and the world is coming out and doing the best that we can. So We're going to look at, back at that and say, what the heck happened? I'm so sorry that we didn't get to have the couple of gatherings that we were planning, that big one in 2020. Yeah, uh, we were originally going to do this uh, side by side. Yep. Uh, live. In New Mexico. <laughs> in New Mexico, up in your secret retreat. That's right. <laughs> so, oh, Chris, it's so, so, so good to have you on the show. And, and listeners are so used to hearing your name on the show. And I do receive emails, and I know you've received emails in the past from listeners. And so your music is, is just wonderful. So we're going to start with, my gosh, Chris, how did you get started piano playing? Well, it's, it's probably a common story. Like every little kid seems to want to want to play the piano or Maybe nowadays, guitar, drums. Oh, God forbid your kid wants to play drums. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, my, my little brother, Michael, who's not that little anymore, but he played drums. And there was no like the headphones and the, the little pads and all back then. We had real drums in, in a tight little neighborhood, and he would bang the heck out of them and wake the neighbors up and bother the neighbors. And the guy next to us worked nights. So Mike would be practicing after school when this guy's trying to sleep. It was a mess. We had a very musical household. But um, back to how I started, I, I was always fascinated by just looking at the instrument. And I start asking for one around five years old. And like every other mom and dad, they thought it was just a a little phase I was going through. So they didn't want to invest the money and then have me quit a month later. So I kept asking and asking and asking for years. It, it turned out to be four years before they sprung for a piano. And I was nine at that time and I was doing really good in school. And after, I guess some really amazing report card, 
<laughs> my dad finally said, okay, we're going to get this boy a piano. <laughs> and, and they did. It was awesome. Oh my gosh. So, and then you took lessons or you taught yourself or did your mom teach no, you? Uh, so they brought in this big piano. It was huge to me. And in, in, uh, hindsight, I think it was only like a five foot mini grand piano, but the lid opened up and everything. So I thought it was like a concert grand on a symphony stage <laughs> to me. That's what it looked like. But uh, so they, they loaded in and set it up. And so I got my piano and then I didn't know what to do with it. I, I start touching the keys and I had no clue what to do. So thankfully mom knew uh, a neighbor, a friend down the street, Mrs. Klodnicki who taught piano. And I don't remember the date, but I remember it was a Wednesday at three 30 that I walked up the street for my first piano lesson. And that's how it started. I think the first lesson was like, so, something like that, like C, D, E, E, D, C. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> awesome. And so the piano, why not the drums like your brother? Why the piano? What intrigued you? Was it something in a movie? Was it something in the store, church? I don't know. I, I guess some kind of uh, intuition that that it suited me. If I was smart, I probably would have grew my hair real long and played lead guitar because they get all the chicks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. But uh, I opted to sit at the piano, and I, I made it through those scales and those early books, and you know, my hands start feeling comfortable on the keys. But I knew I was attracted to the music on the radio. What are these guys doing? Why are they so cool? Why do I like that sound so much? And after a few years, I backed away from the lessons and got more into uh, listening. You know, when anyone asks me about excelling on their instrument, the three words are listen, listen, listen. You have to listen with experts are doing or great musicians are doing and and point your dart at that but anyway yeah i i start gravitating more towards pop music and high school friends that played music and forming these little bands and and uh yeah just just get i, I kind of stepped away from the uh formal training and got more into uh popular music Growing up on Lansing Drive in Mantua with my three brothers, and we had, of course, our record player upstairs in our record collection. We covered a wide range, but I'm proud to say that I was listening to Bill Withers and Billy Preston at a very young age. <laughs> and, of course, they were uh, current stars at the time and currently on the radio. So there was a big station in Philly called WFIL, and I think that's where I heard most new releases from these pop artists. And, of course, we had John Denver playing on the AM radio all, all the time, too. And my mom used to treat me to sheet music. Uh, I guess every payday or every other payday, she'd let me pick out uh, a piece or two to bring home. And uh, I guess every payday or every other payday, she'd let me pick out 
a piece or two to bring home and learn on the piano. And I vividly remember uh, selecting Back Home Again uh, <laughs> from the music store and taking it home, <laughs> setting it up on the piano and starting to learn this John Denver tune that was all over the radio. Little did you know. Little did I know and little did he know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> little did he know. We used to get the radio stations out of Philadelphia, but I I grew up in the Jersey farms, the tomato farms and peach farms. And uh, I picked peaches and apples. Uh, that's how I start buying my first keyboards was working on those farms. But so uh, not too far away, but very far away in a, in a different sense. You obviously learned quite a bit from the people you were working with and for because you became a gardener yourself. It, it, uh, I remember going from a skinny uh, 13-year-old to a muscular 16-year-old because the work was so grueling in the heat and long hours and lifting and, and driving tractors and all. So, yeah, it was, it was an amazing time. And uh, all three of us boys were – worked on that farm and it taught us a lot. And of course we start saving money and buying our instruments. So yeah, it was a stepping stone to a lot of things. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I hope that farm is still in existence today. I think it is. It's called Heilig Orchards and it was founded by uh, an old German immigrant and it, it's generational. So the, the younger ger generation probably still runs it to this day. Well, such great experience, and I did not know that about you. You've never talked I about that. I have many that. surprises. You do, and I, that's, that's an exciting one because, it, like you say, it was grueling, hard labor. You learned a lot. You, you met a lot of people. I think that when kids at a young age work someplace where they have to learn responsibilities, I just think you grow out of it so much better. I would recommend it for any youth yeah, absolutely. And wisdom grows. And you also have a lot of memories for reflection. And I think that's important, too, as we grow. Yeah, one memory is uh, getting up at 530 in the morning, uh, riding the bike four miles to a cold, dewy August morning and swearing that I cannot do this for the rest of my life and I need to do music. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. And it was a stepping stone. <laughs> it was a motivator. Yes. It was. Yeah. My husband was on a farm in Missouri and his family had a farm. So it was the same thing and carrying those bales of hay and driving the tractors. And he would say to himself, I'm going to be an oh. engineer, but it teaches you values and the value yeah. of of family life too, I think. I think in a lot so. Of respects. So now you finished schooling, mm -hmm. and and you decided to just pack it up. Not quite yet. Okay, so I went from the the farm to uh, I started teaching a little music at the Defert Mall to piano and organ customers, people who just would purchase, uh, and they really had no clue. And I'd start showing them the these easy book. Uh, songs. It was really about selling the pianos and organs, but I was there to kind of encourage them to play better. And that lasted, uh, I think, two years, something like that. And I, I was getting antsy. So I would go out and sit in with some local bands. And, and the whole scene in my area was country music, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, dance halls, 
And so this is where I would start meeting people. And I finally got an offer to join a full-time six nights a week dance hall type of country venue, country band thing. I thought it was an amazing offer. And the money back then was, I guess, just under 300 a week. But in the 70s, that was like, hey, yeah, tw 20 years old making adult wages. So uh, I jumped into that band and I kicked around in many of those bands, uh, Pen Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, for, I don't know, five, six, seven years. But, but that also served me by playing with different entertainers, singers, and bands forced me to get more comfortable on piano and keyboards. And this was prior to moving to Nashville. So I think that helped me prepare to move to Nashville. The positive imprints that you were already building and leaving imprints with those students that you were teaching and inspiring them to play. Now, you don't know where they are today, but the value and the positive imprints you have is pretty extraordinary and oh, goes way I'll back. tell you where one of those students ended up. He's a very successful actor out of New York City now. He does <laughs> movies and TV commercials and uh, cable. And yeah, we've been, we've stayed in touch for those many, many years. And we actually talked just a few days ago, but uh, he came into that store just wanting more background on how to play a little bit better. And little did I know he was this major accomplished singer who would later sing on Broadway. So that's one of them. I don't know where the rest went. Chris Knoll's piano playing career has been successful. Sadly, his dad would not live to watch his son grow in his musical talent. Chris's dad passed away at a very young age in 1973. Following the loss of his dad, Chris continued working hard and building a career in which he has played for not only the late John Denver, but Faith Hill, Travis Tritt, Oak Ridge Boys, the legendary Don Williams, Shelby Lynn, Emmylou Harris, Mac Bailey, and many others. Chris recounts his past and the decisions he made in order to fulfill his dreams and goals. Well, I kicked around the area in these local bands, and, and I just, I, I, I was thinking there's got to be something more, and I want to, I want to hang with the bigger dogs, and it was either moved to New York City, Los Angeles, or Nashville, and because of my uh, love of bands like the Almond Brothers and Leonard Skinner, and I just like, you know, if you listen to some of that stuff, the keyboard parts are amazing and that really attracted me it mm -hmm. really did uh pop music uh at that time was a lot of synth and drum machines and guitar and i i just like playing a real piano you know so those styles attracted me i figured i i should head south and that's what i did it was just my mom was raising three boys and we lost her in 2019 by the way my other two brothers had left and I was about to leave to go to Nashville and I felt really guilty. It's like, Oh, you know, to, to leave and then knowing your mom would be alone, but she was much younger back then and very resilient and did, did pretty good as far as I remember, uh, when her last boy 
moved out. How old were you when you threw everything in your country truck? Oh, yeah, my old Chevy truck. I think I was 26. I didn't really have a plan. I loaded up what I had, keyboards and uh, I think an old mattress and found a really cheap apartment. I think my rent was two sixty a month. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Now, you can imagine what that looked like, but yes. <laughs> that was uh, late 80s. Yeah, late 80s. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of a dump, but it worked for a single guy kicking around and really just doing the music thing. So there I was, Nashville. So what do you do when you get to Nashville? Well, I don't know what you do now. It's probably similar. You, you go out every night and you go hear bands and you walk up on breaks and say, hey, I'm Chris. Uh, you guys sound good. Uh, you think I could sit in with you? <laughs> <laughs> and, and how many yeses did you get? Uh, you know, mostly yeses because a lot of these venues were set up to accommodate that, they were like jam nights and multiple bands. And honestly, looking back, you could land a major tour because a lot of these guys hosting the things were in national acts and touring and all. And then they would also do these jams. So, I mean, you were going right to the source back then. And if you played really good, people would get your phone number. So I'm I'm thinking it's still the same thing. I'm just kind of too lazy to go out at night anymore. And uh, <laughs> but I think the same process is going on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that that's that's so cute. Now people could see you on all over social media yeah. and YouTube. So uh, yeah, the exposure is ridiculous now. I, I I really don't know how to even sort through that. Because if you have some little wizard getting millions and millions of views on YouTube, he's not going to go out. He or she is not going to go out to the club. They're going to stay on YouTube. Honestly, no matter what the exposure is, your focus really should be right here. Are you playing good? It's not how many people are listening, whether 10 or 100 or a million. How are you playing? I say the toughest gig for me, and I think for most people, is playing for 10 people, like a house party or a living room, because they are right there, and they are laser focused on you, and you have to connect with them from a few feet away, and I've done a few of those gigs, and I love them, and I kind of got comfortable with with the situation when we were spinning them records up in the bedroom, learning them songs as youngsters, millions of people. That That's what you want to play for. You want to go big time. And of course, that is big time. But I've learned over the years, you could be playing a festival with 40,000 people, a sea of faces, and they're so far removed from you and your performance, the connection is not the same at all. Uh, you're connecting with, with your monitor guy who's 10 feet away from you, your fellow bandmates, and maybe your artist will look at you and talk to you. And, and You might pick out a few faces in the front, but you are how do you connect to 40,000 people? It's difficult. But in a living room, you need to connect with all 10 or 20 that are sitting right in front of you, and they want to be entertained, and they want to connect <laughs> with you. My first concert was... 
Aerosmith and Rick Derringer at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. <laughs> and oh it God. blew my mind. <laughs> and I've stayed a fan uh, the whole way. I know they had some strange years and crash and burn, but they, they were resurrected. And yeah, I'm, I'm one of the best rock front men, Steven Tyler, in rock history, of course. And yeah. And all original members still, I do believe. But I remember I, I, I was young, I, I don't know, 14 or 15, and I remember the smell of this aroma all around me. Uh-oh. <laughs> it was a new smell, kind of a pleasant smell. <laughs> and wow. <laughs> Your introduction. To- <laughs> the whole arena filled with this beautiful smell of burning plants. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So when you were in Nashville, you were trying to make a living with the big legs. How did you do that? Were you trying to find auditions? Yeah. Um, Well, I moved to Nashville. I had to pay rent. So I got in a van and went out with this band and we played uh, holiday in lounges, you know, and, um, the drives were brutal and the gigs I appreciate the income, but the gigs were like four sets a night playing covers, but it served me well. It paid my rent and it kept me on stage, tiny stage, but a stage nevertheless. Of course I knew there was more to music than that. So I kept my antenna up and uh, I, I got an audition with a band that had a record deal. It's called Rye the River. And I was very impressed with that. I was going from cover band to, okay, these guys are on the radio. Now, they weren't that famous, and you probably can't find a thing about them. I think they had uh, one song, make it to like 40 on the country charts. But to me, that was a big deal. These guys been in the studio, have a record deal. I think it was – Arista for like five minutes. They were on the record label, then dropped. So then we start playing the big net clubs, uh, the Grizzly Rose in Denver and Toolies in Phoenix. And so we had, we were on a bus, and it was a ratty old bus, but we were on a bus, and we thought that was a big deal. And we were now traveling the country playing these big rooms. So that was a step up to me. And the money was decent. And... After two or three years, I was we were all figuring out there was really no future. I think they they peaked and and it was just a downward slide. So, but all the time paying rent, so that that counts for something and experience, lots mm-hmm. of experience. And when, at that time, in the bigger clubs, uh, national acts would come in, people currently on the radio, and we'd warm up and shake hands with them and. So I felt like I was brushing up against the big time, finally. And then I started getting auditions for people with record deals. I like to say they're on the radio because there was no internet, YouTube, blah, 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 nothing. If you, you had to be on terrestrial radio to be on your way up or really doing anything. It was all brick and mortar radio stations. So... I think my first national act that had a deal on Columbia, Columbia Records, Nashville, was Shelby Lynn. And they were spinning her, her records, and 
I was in her band. And so that that was the first time I was with an artist who had a record deal and, and the whole whole enchilada. I started kicking around from act to act. And the the goal is to to get into better situations, whether that's money or accommodations or more dates throughout the year. I think from Shelby, I went to a fantastic talent on RCA named Laurie White, fabulous singer and entertainer. And then uh, Laurie took a break. She was in between record deals. And then I got an audition for this unknown chick singer, nice long blonde hair named Faith Hill. Oh, my. (laughs) Yeah. And no one knew who she was except a few folks in Nashville. So I went to that audition and we just hit it off. It was great. She liked my backup singing and she liked my piano playing and I clicked with the band. So she hired me. And I seen Faith turn into a superstar like in four weeks. I've never seen anything like that. Uh, they Maybe released- it was your piano well- playing. Oh, yeah, it was absolutely <laughs> my piano playing. <laughs> the record was recorded before I got in the band. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the song was Wild One, and they released it, and it flew to like top 10 and number one, and then Letterman booked her, Jay Leno booked her, the Grand Ole Opry booked her, and I did all that stuff with her. It was truly amazing. How fun. Yeah. Let's talk about your contributions to our community, the worldwide community, the global community, with the music that you're writing. You're not just writing music. You've also written a book. Uh, Oh, yeah. Um, Actually, I'm I'm working on that. I'm updating it. It, And and, and, uh, I want to say it's more of a guide. I, I wish it was a full book, but I don't have that much patience. And, and I think, <laughs> you write music, Chris. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I feel like I try to get the point across as quick as I can. And it's really, it's really to point musicians in the right direction. It's, uh, it's called collect your music royalties, exclamation point. Because, <laughs> uh, you want me to tell you a little bit about that? Absolutely. It's part of your positive imprint. I've already had inquiries and I've already sent people where to okay. go for the book. Okay. So I run with a lot of guys my age who have done amazing musical things, singer, songwriters, performers. One guy flies to LA every few months talking to music supervisors and, and, and doing the soap opera music. And, you know, so these guys are professionals making a living and know a lot about the music business. And in discussions with them, I would mention this term or another term or this type of royalty or in the entity that, and they would look at me kind of glassy eyed. So I'm going, Oh, these guys are professionals and are a little confused. I know these indie artists have to be really confused. So I put this guide about when you release music. See, today everyone could release music because of the digital realm and digital distributors. So you're actually your own little record label. You're you're functioning as one. But we're all forced to function as one, but you really don't know how to how to go about it. So basically uh, long story longer. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to point these folks in the right direction. Well, if your music is being played here, you need to look out for this royalty being 
kicked off and here's how you collect it. And there, there's so many different types of royalties and entities that collect them and all these accounts you need to create. So my guide helps a little bit with that. And it's for United States, but I will tell you a couple of folks in England who contacted me and they have access to Amazon and oh, they good. did go to grab that book. No, they, they could use some of it. The reason I say it's for the U.S.-based independent artists, because our collection agencies mm -hmm. deal with uh, streams in the U.S. and collections in the U.S., but having that information for anybody and even translating to how it works in your own country, it, yeah, there's a benefit to glancing at it for sure. Absolutely. And now with the streaming, it goes over the borders. So oh, yeah. there's a lot it, with my podcast, I have to purchase all sorts of things for the international laws for streaming and for the cookies, the cookies that we have on our websites. Oh, Europe boy. was really strong on those back when I launched the trailer of December 2018. I had to have all of that in place. And There's it sounds like you, you had a crash course in that. Yeah. So I think I think I, I see you writing your own fifty-page guide to help other <laughs> podcasters. <laughs> I'll need your help. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think so. But your your music. So there are other things that you do besides writing your music. Chris is always happy to answer questions from any musician, especially piano players, and so he's now gearing up in the planning stage a course. This course is to inspire practice methods, goal setting, and other ways for piano players to grow their talent. He also volunteers his time and expertise with Music Therapy of the Rockies, a nonprofit founded by Mac Bailey. The time Chris has spent with Therapy of the Rockies has touched him, changed him, inspired him. The music therapy of the Rockies were, were co-writing with the people affected with PTSD. That's been a big part of my year this year, too. It's sharing music and sharing experiences really aimed at music as healing, a way to healing through music. It's changed my life. And like a lot of musicians, some of us are introverts. We like spending time with our instrument. And then co-writing could be a chore sometimes because you have to share the space with, with this other entity. And in Nashville, we're really good at it. The co-writing thing is very common and very familiar. That's a great thing about living in Nashville where I was exposed to that early on. So I'm really comfortable with co-writing. Anyway, Mac Bailey founded this organization and he has this amazing system. And part of that system is pairing people like me up with a veteran or, and it's not limited to veterans anymore. It's, it, he's expanding into other people affected by PTSD. Anyway, I've learned to sit in a room with some of these wonderful people and talk and listen and laugh and cry and put their story to music and for them to be able to let it out and actually have a guitar or a piano player like me put it to music and put it to rhyme and reason and verse and chorus. And it's their story mm -hmm. and the transformation, a, a, a little bit of pride that it's, it's their song and 
and a little bit about people are listening to me. I'm being heard. It's just an amazing experience for the writers, for Mac, and for the veterans or whoever we're co-writing with. I have to add, we're not the only people co-writing or writing songs with veterans, but, but I have to tell you, the way Music Therapy of the Rockies does it, and I've seen it up close and personal many times now, so it makes me proud to say it really does some good. And, you know, how, how big could you grow it? Because, you know, the, the, the magic really comes from Mac Bailey's empathy right? and the experienced songwriters who have learned to listen and just visit with, with these folks and just be with them. So it's just a beautiful boutique organization right now. How big it grows, I don't know. We shall see. We've got big plans for 2023, and I'm, I'm part of the Nashville crew. Music Therapy of the Rockies is now functioning in Atlanta, Boston, Missouri, Colorado. But, uh, I mean, big plans for 2023, and we just did our first live music benefit a few weeks ago, and it was it was a joy, man. We, we had four of us singer-songwriters on the stage, and everyone hit their mark, and the crowd loved it, and we had two veterans get up with us and perform. So, That's yeah, awesome. That was, That's great. That was a good time. Boy, that is inspiring. Yes. There's so much good out there. So I'm just going to mention a, co- a couple of, actually, one other song that is an absolute favorite of mine. <laughs> and you already know which is my favorite. I, I, no, I'm, I'm guessing in my head here. Tell me, tell me uh, what the, you want to We've talked about it before. Lay Across My Piano. Oh, oh baby. Yeah, yeah. I love that one. Yeah, I, I remember you came to see us uh, out at the Broadmoor, and I, I do believe you were slightly disappointed we didn't include it. <laughs> and I wish, I wish I did, I wish I did that night. So I regret that, but I will get it in on the next show. Uh, that'd be great. Yeah, I love that song, and you sing it just absolutely perfect. And, oh, uh, I remember the the very germination of that song. And it's for folks who haven't heard it, you're going to have to check it out. It's kind of a smoky blues ballad. If you're really going to lay across my piano, make sure you take off your boots and don't scratch up the top of the piano. (laughs) But uh, I was playing a piano. It was a restaurant with a a grand piano in it. And my wonderful co-writer, Stephanie Siegel, we were singing and... And I think the, the restaurant kind of emptied out. There might have been three people at the bar. And I just, you know, start full, start uh, messing with this smoky blues thing. I guess I, I, I looked at her and said, lay across my piano, baby. <laughs> and uh, she started laughing. It was kind of a joke. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then she came out with like the next line. I play a song for you. And the song... It was like four lines, really wasn't a song. So in the coming days and weeks, it's like, Stephanie, that, that's got a cool, smoky vibe, uh, kind of a kind of a little bit of a love, lovey-dovey thing and sexy thing. So we finished it, and uh, no one ever recorded it except me. And I think my buddy Charlie Wood wants to do a version of it, so I, I would love to hear that. Uh, it's... 
it's great. I love playing it for my husband and and you know <laughs> doing the whole. <laughs> you you uh, slide across the piano and lay across my piano, baby. I play a song for you, a sweet melody in your favorite key. To serenade you with these black and whites So smile your pretty smile for me And I'll play for you all night Oh yes I will Lay across my piano Superstar, I will sing you anything, baby. Just stay right where you are. I pour out my heart and soul on this baby grass. Lay across my piano. I 
remember doing that song at a sound check at the Wheeler Opera House, just checking the piano and mic. And Jim Horn was strapping on a sax. He came over to the piano and wailed this sexy, bluesy sax solo. I would love to hear a version of that someday, too. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. it is a great song. I love it. And I think that you and Molly Weaver would have done a great job at the Broadmoor, which oh, I would love yeah. to duplicate. Well, I will put that on a to-do list. I would love to do that that show again. That was that was incredible. And how we learned all that music that quick, because a lot of folks think we have so much rehearsal time and so much prep time, but so many times you don't have a whole lot. Like you kick around a list, oh, let's do this, 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 this. Okay, we got 20 songs. Let's run through them real quick, and then, then you're on stage. And so that was a good night. It was a fun night. but And you look at your experience too, Chris, as you were saying earlier, when you were younger and you were playing for all of the different people, it was giving you that confidence and allowing for the quick, quick think of, okay, this is how we're going to do something. And I think John Denver, you didn't have an audition. You were just kind of put at the moment. It didn't happen. You didn't have to sub, but it was just, here's the music and mm. voila. Yeah, so that's true. I, I guess I always kind of disregard that, but that's kind of gets in your DNA after doing it over and over and over again. Join Chris Knoll and me next week when Chris shares more positive imprints, including his time playing for John Denver. Chris's piano playing transforms lives next week. Well, I thank you for all of it. And I'm so, so excited and thrilled that we finally made it to virtual, but we're virtual and having you here on the show sharing your positive imprints. Well, it was a pleasure being here and chatting with you. Thank you, Catherine. Oh, you're so welcome. So to end the show, of course, this is Chris Knoll, the one and only, who is the composer of Your Positive Imprints, Elevated Intentions. Chris, so wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much. You're welcome. To learn more about Chris Knoll, go to chrisknoll.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Chris Knoll is going to end the year with our Christmas message here at Your Positive Imprint on December 23rd. But again, join us next week for part two with Chris Knoll. Music used with permission. Rocky Mountain High and Leaving on a Jet Plane from Chris's Fly Away album. Lowbrow Blues from Piano Blues. Gumbalaya from Barrel House Boogie. And Lay Across My Piano from It Be What It Be. Don't forget to hit that follow, subscribe, or download button now. And thanks for listening. Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.?